if we say who will heal cancer, who will build the European rockets that bring a lot of payload uh, into space, who will build energy storages that are reliable and scalable for our new uh, desperately needed energy transition. These are not the people working from Bali, having a great time, working for hours very effectively. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Dries Vaams, and today, Garrett McGowan is joining me again as co-host for a very special episode. Joining us today is Frank Thelen, a true legend in the field of entrepreneurship. Frank is a renowned tech investor, best-selling author, and a leading authority on entrepreneurship in Germany. In this episode, we explore with Frank the transformative power of artificial intelligence and how it's revolutionizing the startup landscape. So without further ado, let's jump right in to this captivating conversation with Frank Thelen about the bright and dark side of AI for entrepreneurship. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Great. Actually, we always start in the same way on our podcast. So we always give briefly the floor to our guests to tell something about their personal background, and they can actually choose where they start, where they want to end. So the floor is briefly to you to just tell something about your background and how you ended up where you are today. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, my background is I was very bad uh, in school, uh, but then <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm, I'm currently here in Bonn, where, where I live. Um, and I had the, the honor to have a, a very, in a very few phase, uh, a, a team here that developed the first video conferencing solution, not over okay. the internet, but really ISDN, peer-to-peer, -peer, so only old people can follow me now. <laughs> and that where I got the virus that uh, computers, networks are uh, pretty cool. Uh, so then I started to uh, uh, develop software and then, yeah, made terrible decisions, went bankrupt. Uh, started to to crawl and then and go and maybe even run a little bit again. And today, I'm focusing on if you want to call it the best buzzword, but deep tech uh, in Europe. Mm -hmm. So with Freigeist, uh, we do seed venture capital in things like robotics, flying cars. Uh, we're supporting a team um, for a possible cancer drug, um, uh, energy storage, and so on. And then I have a second company called 10X DNA where we do deep tech on a global basis in the public equity market. And that's a little background about myself. Great. And so given that you're investing in deep tech, I'm sure that you're delving quite deep into the topic of generative AI. And that's a bit what we wanted to discuss today with you. So maybe as a, as a starting question about this topic, uh, given that you are talking quite 
continuously with companies and startups. Do you already see specific changes in how startups are working based on generative AI? Um, yes and no. Uh, of course, for us, it's a quite important topic and, and um, AI artificial intelligence uh, is, a, is a big buzzword and, and, and uh, we have to see that the technology is there for many, many years and now we're just on an inflection point. So then mm. with ChatGPT, we had a product that, that people really understand it. We had new GPUs, a little new algorithms, but in general, it was a continuous development over uh, decades. So now uh, we are at, a, at an interesting inflection point and we will get more and more uh, capital and attention like this podcast to the topic, which will then uh, yeah, be become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so yes, I see things are, are changing and, and, and um, with ChatGPT and, and the API, um, startups are integrating that to be more effective. Um, currently, it's of course very strong in text. So for example, for search engine optimization, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's quite good for automating tasks. But uh, is there a real revolution yet? No because okay. it optimizes some of the things in a, in a very good way also for us. Um, but it's not like we, we have this, this new breakthrough a startup that, that is really deep tech, but many existing startups utilize the API and then making some dust around it uh, for the investors mm -hmm. and say, we are an AI startup now, uh, which is okay, uh, it's the market. But yeah, it's not like, um, especially in, in Europe that we see true um, AI happening. Yeah. So it's an interesting point that you make, Frank, about, you know, uh, what is an AI startup? Um, because I'm seeing a lot of uh, trends in deal flow, like I saw in Web3, you know, mm -hmm. a few years ago. You know, we're yeah. the Web3 of this. We're the AI of this. And it's almost, uh, you know, we're in that early stage of of buzzword bingo a little bit. Like, let's throw in the the terms investors want to hear and uh and kind of build our brand around that are you if i understood you correctly you're kind of saying that you know people are talking about it but not a lot of people are are really doing it they may be using it as a third-party tool but you're not seeing a lot of real ai companies yet yes so so this time it's a little bit more complicated because what basically most of the startups are doing is they they're using an llm api for 90 percent it's open ai but they're all the uh, competitors. The funny thing is we believe um, that, that OpenAI uh, will not be the dominant player for very long. So there will be other things and then it becomes a commodity, how you say. So there, there's very hard, it will be very hard for small players to, to earn money in that. But what is basically happening is that they have um, an idea or, uh, or an existing software and now they're calling the API to send over a, a clear prompts and then it, it looks like like magic, but basically um, the the deepness of um, of development is just like we call it five percent, ten, twenty percent, but but mostly ninety percent is just OpenAI today or, or other APIs. But today, most of the time, OpenAI. And then it's not an for for us, it's not an AI startup because basically they, they don't have the value. And the, and the problem for us is, can you build a fence around your startup? And do you have an unfair advantage that's getting better and better? For example, um, Google had the unfair advantage that we all searched inside Google. So they learned what we are searching for. 
which answers do we like, which answers, in which answers do we engage, and so on. So they had this unfair advantage that even a big Microsoft with Bing could not compete. We don't see this currently in the AI space, or at least in the deals uh, we have we have seen. So um, yeah, it makes sense for them to put the AI stamp on the on the pitch deck. Um, but uh, Aleph Alpha or other true uh, AI startups, they're very seldom. And uh, yeah, then normally they also get like 100 million, 200 million rounds, which will not fit with us because we're seed investors. So 99% of the of the AI startups that that we see are yeah are a normal startup. So, so I hear quite some skepticism. <laughs> Does that mean that at the moment you might actually be scaling back a bit your investment in AI startups because maybe there is already a kind of hype bubble emerging? How, how are you looking at this as, as AI startups approach you? So so, so we are doing this now for, for 25 years. Mm. And um, we... I believe it's fair to say that we truly understand the technology. We developed a startup uh, when we still were on the founder side. It's called what was called Do the Document App, where we uh, by ourselves developed or, or utilized some of the algorithms uh, that are now uh, bringing that that big wave. And it was like ten years ago, and it's all well documented. So, so we know the code, and, and we have invested into this. For example, in Smart Lane, uh, which isn't. AI, but a but a but a true AI um, uh, working on, on in the logistics um, field. So when we look at a startup, we we tr we really dive into the code, and that, that might be a little bit unique for us. So so we do code reviews, we talk to the CTO, we talk to the lead architect, and try to understand um, which tech stack do you have, what what are you utilizing, and then when you when you open up that box. Um, uh, many of the current startups are using PHP, which is totally fine because it's quite fast to, to get to a certain demo or a certain minimal viable product. And then they call the open, uh, open AI API, uh, which is great. And then, then there's some magic like you can, for example, you could summarize that, that conversation here. And you could say for that podcast, um, I get a 10 sentence um, uh, uh, short description, then I got a mm. great uh, graphics and then, then I do whatever. And this is magic. This is freaking magic. Mm. But the magic is happening on the LLM side. Uh, and, and there's no beef for us because when I invest into a startup, the question is, what is the long-term value? Because I, I become a shareholder, I put in my, my capital and, and our efforts from Freigeist. So you want to see that there's an unfair advantage. And for example, a Lilium Aviation as a jet, you can't copy. And this is something where we say, okay, there will be hundreds of, of these startups doing these easy things. So you as an investor, I believe, currently has to really dive deep into it and understand uh, what is real value versus what is some magic that looks great. But there will be, I'm not kidding, three to 400 startups on a global base doing these obvious things like um, writing marketing text, like yeah. uh, summarizing things. And, and I'm not kidding. I mean, we, mm. we're... We are using a notion and then we track all the competitors through AI scripts and so on. And, and in one startup, we had 400 competitors because the idea is so, so obvious and it's so easy to implement and it looks like magic. But the question for us as an investor is, can you in the long term have an unfair advantage? And we don't see this in 99% in of the startups. And, and where should that unfair advantage then be situated if you consider the AI space? So you're saying it's, it's not in the kind of straightforward applications where you use the open uh, AI API and simply 
kind of do have software layer on top of it. So the, the unfair advantage should be somewhere else. I think you're also saying it's not really in the fundamental LLMM models because they will become a commodity. Yeah. So where do you see where do you see the room for an unfair advantage then if it's not in the basic models and also not in the kind of uh, applications? Yeah. Uh, first of all, um, in the things that we've done before, uh, look like, for example, we have a company called Xentral. Uh, it's an ERP. It's quite a complicated software that uh, connects shop systems and then brings the, the product onto the different uh, Amazon, Ebays and so on and does all the invoicing and, and logistics and everything. That's a quite complicated software. So now this team can utilize AI in many ways to deliver a better product. Or let's go to a public company called monday.com. Uh, it's the same. They have a task manager, productivity suite. So they have built this and now they're utilizing AI to build a better product. But the core is that they have the best task manager. We have the, uh, the best business software for commerce companies with Central. So it's basically kind of the same. And AI is just like um, you had to move to the cloud or you had to offer a, a mobile app to not fall behind. And that, that's mm. kind of the same. So it's, a, it's the same question that we have is, is the core business uh, something special? And then they're utilizing AI to write code, to design screens, to offer uh, better functionality um, for their customers, but it's not about um, yeah, uh, okay. AI in the, in the focus. There are also, by the way, there are AI companies that are really doing the hard work in the, in the, in the research development. But honestly, for us as venture capitalists, it's quite hard to invest because mm. LLMs, we believe, we might be totally wrong, become a commodity. Um, because, yeah, going too deep now, but we believe there, there will be not a lot of value for, for investors. No. And you could also, we looked into a company that has a special um, a codec developed for um, voice optimization. Like now my phone would ring, they would cut it out. And these, this is real deep tech. It's not like a call to, an, to, to some API, but they developed this over years in-house. But now, because there's so much competition and for example, Meta, uh, just uh, open source or will uh, we believe will open source such a library it's also very hard to make returns as an as an investor but there are many teams that do real deep true research in in uh in ai but for us it's it's currently it's tough to find the, the business model where we believe in we will make uh, returns hmm. i'd like to flip the script and ask you this from a different perspective because in our last episode we had uh andre retarat from early bird on and uh, you know, talking about how technologies like this are going to transform your industry on the investor side. Yeah. Can you share a little bit of you got, whether it's Frygeist or you personally, your perspective on how AI ML will transform the, the venture capital world? Yeah, super interesting. And uh, Andre is really at the forefront uh, here. Uh, he has done a tremendous uh, job uh, working at Early Bird, but also uh, kind of educating the, the industry. So for us, we also have to challenge ourselves. And, and by the way, in two ways. The first thing what we do it, well, I'm doing this for 25 years. So what was the old way? The old way was you had to be a, a cool guy or girl being invited to the right parties. Uh, sometimes we bragged about hey, I was in this big yard and there were all the hot deals and I, I got into that deal. <laughs> and so 
and, and, and this is basically over because it, it's about data now. It's about uh, um, uh, understanding how you can, can get the data from the seed stage or series A, wherever you invest data globally from very different sources and then understanding it so that you say, because there's too much data and you have a, have a system that basically bubbles up and say, you should look at this company, you can ignore these 10,000 companies. And that's done then, then our industry changed in a dramatic way because really like for many, many years, it was like the network being the hot investor and so on. And that's over uh, or most of the, most of the part is over for industry. So now it's about what is your data strategy? And that's what Andre is talking, talking about. And how, how do you do the software? And then the challenge is we are a seed fund. So what, what, our, what I use is, is that we help the founders uh, with, with a team on a 360 degree level with really everything, but we only do two deals and we only do seed investments. Mm -hmm. So we cannot afford like a 3 million budget per year in our own software. So what I believe is there will be an industry standard in software that then venture capitalists will buy. Let, let's call it a Bloomberg because I will go later to the public market, but mm -hmm. they developed something like Bloomberg because it was not part of the teams anymore. And for me, the interesting question is, will it be a core of the VC to have the software or will it be an industry standard and everybody uses Bloomberg and you focus on helping the founders, whatever is your, your, your USP. So, so quite interesting. So we, because we have a software background, we developed our own software uh, and, uh, but not any, any VC can do this, especially if they're, if they're smaller. So it's quite interesting. And yeah. And then, uh, the, the whole industry was, uh, will be completely different in, in the next years because software will be the defining asset. And then, uh, you have to ask yourself, what are you really bringing as a venture capitalist to the table? And in, in the end, will it not be a completely automated distributed system that just moving uh, the investments around and we don't need the humans anymore. Um, it's a quite interesting phase. But then we are talking again about this kind of unfair advantage, not because if I hear you talking, your prediction seems to be like today our students at PAU have a Bloomberg terminal that they can use to analyze public companies. They might have maybe a sidegeist terminal where you can evaluate private companies, but then that doesn't become an unfair advantage not anymore, not it's just something that you need to have. So then yeah. my question would be where, how can you leverage these data to still create a kind of unfair advantage as an investor? Ha. That's a very tough question. And uh, <laughs> so, so my answer is um, we put in the work. I can only talk about Freigeist. So what mm -hmm. we do is we really go to the teams, we write code with the team. So we do the software architecture and help them. We do the design, whether it's branding and communication or the UX UI. We do the sales. So I personally go into sales calls. I, I take and also a lot of meetings with the, with the, with the, uh, with the startups. Um, we, whereas, for example, simple things in the early stage, like setting up all the software that you need, like how are you using Notion? Um, how, how do you set up the, the digital productivity system, operating system inside your startup, all these things. So our answer is our unfair advantages. We have a, a strong team that supports in, in all aspects, goes into the startup and really uh, puts in the work. Mm -hmm. that, so uh, uh, today, I believe that's still needed. <laughs> so uh, there's still people needed to do this. Uh, but we also have to question ourselves, when is that, what can be automated by AI? So do, what, what uh, for example, sales, how long 
am I needed or is it just a completely automated script? And it's a fair question. But currently we see the need and, and we see the success in, in, in helping the startups with humans. Yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, uh, you know, the integration of these technologies are going to even the playing field on the deal flow side, right? You're going to be yeah. able to have a much broader reach there. Um, wh what that's going to do, it's going to create, uh, I think the competitive advantage is going to come from brand and value add for the investors, right? What's your reputation? What value add do you bring to the table that's going to get you selected among among the founders as as the investor? Where I'm seeing a real gap and an opportunity is actually the analysis and the selection process, right? Because it's not like a public market where a lot of the company data is readily available. And, you know, AI machine learning relies on data. And if that data is sitting on a spreadsheet on a founder's laptop, um, there's still going to be that human element that's going to have to assess those companies and assess those founders. Or... Conversely, do you feel that uh, the technology will penetrate that deep and really kind of affect the whole investor value chain from from uh, lead gen all the way down to, to closing? Um, today, I see that, that that humans are quite important. Um, what we see is it's it's trivial, but um, the founding team is very, very important. It's in every book, it sounds so trivial, but in the real world, we always see like, it's so important to see whether this team um, works together, um, is ready to go through tough times, are not playing games, have the right ethics, and, and so on. So it's crucial in the tough times. So, and, and an AI cannot do this. So, so I, I even uh, saw that some VCs are scraping LinkedIn and then seeing the actions of founders and say he likes this this uh, this uh, whatever post and and then trying to understand like is he a good guy or a good girl uh, and that that I, I know for for sure that that they stopped this project because in the end they said it it, it it has no value so for us about having this this gut feeling and it, it it's a nose it, it's the gut it's 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 a lot of experience like can these two, three, four founders pull it off. Will they go through the hard, uh, the hard times? Then truly understanding the technology AI can't do today. Um, if you invest in the early, in the early phase of, of deep tech and seeing whether this industry needs this player, what are the next steps? Can you show the steps towards the series A, then B, and, and can, is the cash that you're putting in enough to reach that goal so that you really have a clear path about how they will survive because it's freaking tough to survive as a hardware startup and, and many, many other things. So I believe um, currently um, AI is helping, for example, in the deal flow a lot, is helping in, in um, doing things more effectively in the team side, so sales and so on helping them. But the, the deep thinking and the deep tough decision-making, whether we want to invest, which company do we invest, what is the roadmap to success? That's still very, very, very uh, human today. You know, you, you made a really interesting point there that I just wanted to, to touch on as well, which is, you know, taking this concept and bringing it into your space, which is, is deep tech, right? I think a lot of, you know, software at the world founders or uh, investors, um, struggle with those kinds of deals because it's very hard to predict the 
the timelines and they tend to be longer than fund cycles will be. You know, for for investors that are really getting a deeper look into what those those life cycles and what those timelines will be, do you think there's going to be a shift in the way funds are set up? Like there we're going to move to more evergreen funds and things that are are doing the longer play or do you think um do you think the existing model will still work in that context? I mean, especially for, for software companies, um, I don't know where, where, where the fund size and cycles and so on are going. Because in the end, if you say, um, I can write code, I don't know, four, five, six times faster, especially if you look at the next 12 to 18 months, what, how much these code completion, code creation tools will uh, very likely evolve. Um, and then, for example, uh, the UI, um, the, um, like, like you can learn from text, what is basically uh, uh, OpenAI or BART is they read the, the whole internet. And so they, they kind of learned. You can do the same thing with UI. So you look at all the login and register screens. You look at all the data tables. You look at all, all those, those workflows, menus, and, and so on. And then you can say, uh, create me a very effective menu for these seven entries and create a, a, a registration and login process and so on. And then you hit enter and it's the same like a text that we have today. Uh, you can create all those screens. It's, it's an alpha stage today. Uh, we are playing around with it. it, 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 it it's quite bad now, but it will be great the more, the more data put in. It's, technology wise, it just makes sense and it will work. Mm. Six months, 12 months, I have no idea. So now you have, and then you have all the auto automation of, of marketing and so on we talked about. So the question is, when you look at software as a service, how much capital do you actually need? Hmm. And is there, is, is there still room for, a, let's say, a tiger, a tiger global, putting in like hmm. a 100, 200, 300 million and, and uh, in, in all those, those software service need companies that look like there will be a success? Or are you writing very small checks? Because basically, these startups should come into positive cash flow quite fast because the idea now they can can execute so fast and so effectively at a, at a, at a, at a tense or, or even lower cost part. So I have no clue where, 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 this, where this is going, but I believe um, big funds for software as a service, currently I don't see them in the future. When you look at hardware, it's a completely different game. Uh, look at the very, very, very extreme side of a Hyperloop or a Lilium Aviation. They need billions of dollars or euros um, to build this. And, and there, there's, no, there's no short path. And, and AI can help in many ways, making things more efficient. And, 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 but, but in the end, it's, it takes time to build a Hyperloop or, or a plane. So uh, there you have a, a lot of capital need. But in software as a service, I don't know. Okay, maybe also I want to briefly touch a bit because um, you did recently at the OMR Festival an, a nice presentation about AI where you actually also spent quite some time on the dark side of AI and the need for regulation, uh, where you were kind of making a strong claim that Europe needs to think about how will we regulate this industry. Now, I think if you look at the regulation of in Europe, it's, it's quite focused on we will embrace AI, but it always needs to respect kind of the freedoms and responsibilities of our citizens. 
do you have an, an opinion about how regulation in, in Europe regarding AI is moving forward? Do you think it's moving in the right direction or do you see significant challenges? Uh, first of all, I need to work on my keynote. Uh, because <laughs> if, if, if the takeaway from you is that, that I want regulation in Europe, I did a bad job. So I will, okay. hopefully, I will hopefully do better next time. Um, what, what, I, what I want is that we have a strong Europe, okay. an independent, strong Europe, because we need regulation later, not today, and we need a global regulation. Okay. European regulation basically makes no sense. This is a global thing. And, and what we see now with, uh, with uh, OpenAI, uh, Sam Altman moving forward and doing this, this, this global uh, um, community thing is, I believe he knows that his time is now and he has to protect his IP because there are many open source projects and, and also commercial competitors that will have a better product very soon. So I believe what he's saying, I might be wrong, but what, what, why he's saying I need regulation and licenses for this is to mm. protect his business. I believe mm. that's the total wrong approach. What Europe is trying to do is also wrong because they want to regulate artificial intelligence and they have no clue about it. Even I have no clue about it because it's moving so fast. So what we have to regulate is, um, for example, um, deep fakes, but not whether they're created by AI or created by human. Like we don't want that somebody um, uh, says he is somebody, but he isn't the body. And that's, that's wrong. So let's, re let's regulate this. But don't go into specific technologies, software, libraries, licenses to run software, that's the total wrong approach. And we have to go for a global approach because if we now in Europe again regulate AI, uh, China and, and uh, the US will, will keep on working and we just fall behind. And what will happen is what happened with a mobile and the cloud is that we 100% will run on US or uh, Chinese software and hardware. And I believe we have to change this. Europe has to become independently strong and and that's why i believe uh, we should stop regulations but invest heavily into um, into ai and, and also hardware chips quantum computing uh, and so on yeah and gary go ahead uh, yeah i mean this to me this is such a fascinating topic right as, as a half american half german that spent <laughs> my life on on both sides i'm i'm always conflicted on these things but you know, one of the things I've been having a lot of discussions about is, you know, kind of the the beginnings of the end of software as we know it. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. There's some political reasons and a move towards greater nationalization. But perhaps more importantly, there is the the national siloing of data. You know, I think GDPR obviously played a big role. We're getting ready to see one here in Switzerland uh, being enacted in the next couple months. And now we're talking about a technology that's pulling data from all over the world, right? And mm -hmm. analyzing that data. Do you see regulatory risk in the way we silo our data that could essentially throw a wrench in this whole kind of growth curve that we're seeing right now? Absolutely. And I believe what, what we did with the data protection in, in Europe so far 
uh, was not the right way to to go about it because uh, just starting by the ridiculous cookie uh, windows and so on and what what basically happened is that the big players like the Amazon and Metas and so on that did get the data because I basically have to acknowledge because otherwise I don't see the photos of my friend or I'm missing out on toilet paper because I'm not an Amazon customer anymore. Mm. But all the startups and the, and the smaller companies, they, the, the, the users opt out. Uh, so I believe um, currently the data regulation in, 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 in Europe is totally doing the, the wrong things. And currently the most important thing is that we're not left behind. For example, BARD is not available in, uh, in Europe so far. You have to use a VPN to access it. And I believe that's freaking ridiculous and that's just leaving us behind. Mm -hmm. So yeah, less regulation, more seeing the opportunities, building an industry, independent industry in, in Europe is very important. Maybe to give a bit pushback here, but, and actually it's something that I always discuss with my students also. So I, I fully see your point about how GDPR and other things are making life of European companies and startups in particular quite difficult. And even I, as an academic researcher, I'm struggling with GDPR yeah. because it limits my ability to collect data, use data. At the same time, as a citizen, sometimes I like it that in Europe we are quite strict in how data are used, processed, because you don't want to end up in kind of Chinese situations where the government can monitor whatever you do and give you automatic penalties if you don't obey with certain mm -hmm. rules and regulations. So I think at least there is a kind of tension between what do I like as a kind of entrepreneur and what do I like as a citizen living in a particular country? Do you have a certain opinion about that? How you, how you could deal with that tension? Yeah, I believe it's quite important that, um, and, and that's very tough, to, that, that, we, that it's not misused. Uh, mm -hmm. like, like in China, it's really uh, it's, it's it's unbelievable when you when you when you honk with a car, and you're not allowed to honk, uh, you get basically in real time uh, the ticket on 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 the WeChat because mm -hmm. they have all the data who's sitting in the car and so on. So absolutely, that that's something uh, we don't want to have here. Uh, so we need to 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 find the the boundaries. Uh, and I believe where what we need to do is to have an opt out so that people can actively say, I don't want them to use. But the default is that the big guys and importantly, the small guys can use data because, mm. yes, we don't want to have that full control over, over us. I, I, I agree. But on the other hand, um, we also want to have better cities. So we want to monitor our traffic and, and route it in a better way. We want to know how we can optimize the heating of, of our buildings. We, we know. I want to know when when I'm likely to get a heart attack, and, and these are all things. Yeah, and and, and it, yeah, look at look at uh, COVID. Um, people died uh, because of paper trails, uh, mm. and and it was ridiculous. Because re I'm not kidding. I mean, I had COVID uh, three or four times, and, and 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 it was like just a month later that I got informed that I should stay at home and whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that, that was the real life. So if we don't be bold in digitization and utilizing data, we are also missing a lot, a lot behind. So currently, I believe when you have kind of a gosh, like it's really like that on a on a on a nine percent security and, and 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 one one on level one of opportunity, and we need to put this somewhere somewhere uh, in, in in the middle. Mm -hmm. As a guy that's building a, a health tech product right now, I'm totally with you on that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's about <laughs> because it's so hard to say, hey, we don't want to be like China. And I agree. But on the other end, hey, I, I, I want to live. I mean, I, if, if somebody have the, the data of, of MRTs uh, to see that I have an early stage of cancer, uh, I, I believe that's, that's very helpful. And that's something that we don't utilize today because of all those data protection laws. Exactly. Maybe one final broader question that, yeah. that quite intrigues me, because you're quite vocal on LinkedIn about policy issues. For instance, recently you talked about uh, this four-day working week, uh, and, and then I think you have a lot of supporters, but you also get a lot of pushback. And then I'm wondering, like, why does Frank want to do this? Why does he want to <laughs> post LinkedIn and get all this shit uh, on LinkedIn or whatever social media channel? You could also choose yeah. to just remain silent and do your yeah. job uh, uh, as an investor. Uh, why do you do that? Oh, that's a very interesting topic. Uh, and and, and uh, yes, uh, some people really ask me, uh, good friends and also friends that are even more in the kind of in the, in the public than me and say, Frank, why, why are you still doing this? <laughs> and the, the answer is somebody has to. Hmm. Because when I talk to, to friends and other entrepreneurs and other people who make really important decisions because they're, they're, they're a high quality politicians or they're running public big companies with with a lot of employees they say ah i i can't say that i be, i believe it would be important to say that but i can't can't say that and and i'm i'm free so uh, i i got i got shit storms and by the way I, I, uh, in the last couple two or three years when we had a, had a very heat heated uh, election here in germany mm -hmm. um this was getting out of control i have to say Okay. Like really on, on, on Twitter, I was trending number one for weeks and weeks and, and people, people are, are really um, did step over the line, I, mm. I, I would say. Um, so, but, I, but, but then, then there was a, was a certain time where I said, okay, that, that, that's too much. Mm. Uh, but then I reflected and say, okay, if I now go back and I don't say what I believe is right for, for Germany, what is right for Europe or what's right for the world, um, for example, I, I talked um, about fusion energy and, and other things, and I believe that's that that's the wrong result. So, mm. and I have the 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 big luxury to be financially independent, so and to be um, not in uh, not a politician, and also not running a, a public company like a Deutsche Telekom or Lufthansa or whatever. So yeah, I will raise my voice. I will get uh, many, many shit storms. Uh, people <laughs> will hate me. People are, are, are loving me. I also got a lot of positive feedback and, and really people that, that are very enthusiastic about it and say you are so, your, your voice of reason, they say of reason, mm -hmm. is so important. Um, and, and also free speech. I mean, I, I'm also very vocal about that, uh, that, I'm, uh, that I really, really admire what Elon Musk is doing. And, and he's, um, he's pro-free speech. And when I wrote about, for example, the LGBTQT plus thing that I say it's important that everybody can live his life that he wants to, but maybe it's getting a little bit too much uh, mm. now with all those flags and, and, and so on. Uh, then many people wrote me like, great that you say it, but are you insane? You can't say stuff like this. <laughs> and then I said, and, and you know, I'm, I'm this is getting too far because I, I hope I, I did find the right tone. I, I hope that my my view is 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 
is reasonable. And why mm. are then people sending me private DMs and WhatsApps mm. and say, Frank, uh, great, really great, mm. but wow. Mm. And I said, hey, I just, and, and that's important that we, that we have the free speech is not always being co compliant with something, but, but really listen to other opinions and having a, a reasonable with the right voice and tone uh, discussion. And we, we, we are, we have been close to losing that. For example, COVID again, if somebody said, mm. I don't agree to, uh, I believe COVID is no problem, which I believe would be stupid maybe, but mm -hmm. you, you didn't even listen to them. They would just say that's a Nazi. And, and, and it's important that we on the left and on the right, within the law that everybody can voice his opinion. And, and um, yeah, that, that's, that's quite important for me. And that's, yeah, with all the shit storms, uh, I'm uh, I, currently the plan is to, to keep on, uh, on uh, yeah, communicating. I'm afraid the world has lost its sense of nuance. So no matter yeah. how well we try to kind of explain the nuances of our positions, uh, people love to take sound bites and focus on that. So that's always the risk of, of speaking to the broadly to the masses. But but I want to go back to Dries's comment because you do talk about a few topics that are near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, for example, you know, these concepts around four day week work week or universal basic income, things of those sorts that have a, uh, you know, I think they could be taken as having a, a, a philosophical or political angle, or they could mm -hmm. be taken to have a utilitarian angle. I spend a lot of time working with founders talking about well-being and balance, not, you know, because that's just my ethos, because I believe that makes better founders and, and better companies. When you're talking about topics such as this, is this is there a utility utility rationale behind it, or is this just kind of your your politics and your your philosophy? Well, I hope not politics, mm -hmm. but but philosophy. Mm -hmm. So um, for, for example, like, like, let's take the, the, the part like hard work, mm -hmm. whether should there be a, a work life balance? Should we have more yoga retweets? Should we have workations? Mm -hmm. Should people work out of the pool? And, and, and I'm building companies for, I don't know, getting old 30 years. And, and I'm doing that here with my very close team, like Alex Koch and, and, and Mark Zieberger. And we have a certain experience about what works and doesn't work and 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 and, and we don't believe in 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 this uh four day remote bali and 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 it's great if 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 great if 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 people can make their living and and I, i'm totally not against this so that's great enjoy life quite important for you do whatever you like but if we say who will heal cancer who will build the european rockets that bring a lot of payload uh, into space who will build energy storages that are reliable and scalable for our new uh, desperately needed energy transition these are not the people working from bali having a great time working for hours very effectively and it's fine and they, they, they can do that. But again, they're, they're not politically, but, but um, this is bullshit. I mean, and, and people are, are telling me, and, and also when, when you say, hey, found, uh, found a company that's so cool. No, it's not cool. It's like eating glass. Mm. And, and, and that's why, and I don't say everybody, anybody should 
uh, find, uh, found a company and everybody should work like like I did. I'm also not working that hard anymore. Like like I did, um, really, there were no vacation. It's just the right way to go. Mostly likely not. But if you want to achieve it, if you want to really be excellent and you want to be faster than all the competitors out of the US, out of China, and you want to be the winner in a certain market that has a certain importance, it's fucking hard. And look at and it's not, and, and I believe it's wrong that we give this impression like, yeah, you can do workations and you can can work out of here. And uh, if, if you're surfing, you're also, also thinking if, if you go for one hour surf, that, that's good. Uh, but but yep. it can't be the, the half of the day. Right. Uh, I, I'm sorry. And, and that's just the, the truth that I want to communicate. And of course, I got a lot of backslash and people saying, yeah, um, that's bad. And that's fine. And they have a different opinion. And, and, and that's good. Fine. Yeah. Great, great. Okay, point. Frank, I think this was great. We have also a bit of a broader discussion. It's clear that you have really <laughs> a strong opinion here. Um, but given uh, you also have a very strict uh, schedule, so I, I think we need to end it here. But we always have one final question on our podcast, namely, do you have specific suggestions for our audience in terms of books to read or podcasts to listen to, things that can really inspire our listeners? Any suggestions? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I believe there's one podcast. It's very, very um, valet style. So, so take it with a with with this view. Like this is the valet view, and it's called the All In Pod. Oh yeah. And I believe it's great, <laughs> but it also shows. And I listen to it to to the pod every su uh, Saturday or Sunday whenever I find the time because I it's quite quite important uh, podcast. But it's a valley view. It's also important. Like we need a strong Europe, and these are the yeah. valley boys that say it. Uh, but but to get this view and and yeah. what are they thinking? Also quite interesting for me is when they talk about Germany and Europe. Uh, it's also uh, <laughs> that's, that's also quite quite interesting. So yeah, uh, that, that 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 that's a podcast uh, with that note on uh, take care. It's a valley view. Uh, yeah. Is it's uh, quite interesting and uh, yeah and important. L no, last I agree, question actually, because yeah. it's a hot topic. Who wins? Who wins in a cage? Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> I truly, truly hope nobody. No. <laughs> fucking dumb idea. These are both important people building important stuff, especially Elon. Mm -hmm. And if he would hurt himself, it would just be stupid. I believe it's a, it's a, but in the end, of course, it's his life. He can do whatever he he, he wants. Uh, and yeah, I, if they will fight, of course, I will very very hard try to, <laughs> to join and get a get a get a ticket. But in the Colosseum, not in the Colosseum, <laughs> apparently. Uh, and and I hope the the, uh, the uh, Elon's mother is already uh, yeah going mm -hmm. in here and, and making strong strong voice. Uh, so I believe it will not happen. If it if it will happen, I hope Elon wins, and I will <laughs> I will cheer for him. There we go. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Frank, thank you for being here, and uh, also to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and hope to have you again here in for our next ones. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Bye bye.